We begin, as I said, a eight-week series focusing on the cross in the lead-up to Easter. And my aim is simple. As we look at God's word and as we think about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, my aim is that we might live lives that boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul writes to the Galatians, but as much I think he intends this sentence for himself. It's, if you like, a one-sentence sermon. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are two things in this one-sentence sermon in Paul's mind that are important for us to understand as we begin this series on the cross. Firstly, the cross is primary. It's central in Paul's thinking such that the Christian life could be summarised simply as boasting in the cross. The way of understanding Jesus in Paul's mind, the way of understanding properly his life and mission is to understand his death. Nothing except the cross. Secondly, the cross isn't just primary. The cross isn't just primary, it's personal. It's personal, it's changed Paul's life. Although it's a historic reality that Paul didn't witness himself, his life has been changed such that he says that the world has now been crucified to him and him to the world. His life now has this cross shape. He's entered the world of the cross. He's immersed himself in the cross. He now, as a person who lives identifies himself primarily not with Jesus' life but with Jesus' death. His life has been reordered and this reordering has led to a reorientation in terms of how he relates to the world. The cross is primary, central, of first and most importance in Paul's mind, but it's not just primary, it's personal. It, it's changed, it's reordered his life such that he now lives this cross-shaped life and that changes everything, his relation to the world. In fact, he's a new creation. Uh, if you look it up, you'll see in the verses following. And so as we examine the cross, we want to remember... Our task is simply that the cross would be central to us, that it would be primary to us, that it would be personal to us, that it would reshape, reorder and reorientate our lives as we live like Paul lived. May we boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. Well, that's the aim for this series But I want to start this uh, talk today, just, I'm not trying to do too much, which might be a relief to some of you here this afternoon. I just want to really introduce the topic and think about a couple of things 
Um, I want to think about the nature of death. I want to think about the nature of crucifixion. And I want to think about what it means to boast briefly in the cross. You'll see that there's an outline. So up to the second point, the disappointment of death. A uh, a well-known American interior designer summed up her life and work by saying, I like to surround myself with beauty to make the ugliness go away. Now, I'm not sure what ugliness she had in her life. Perhaps it was her husband. Perhaps it was something else. But she encouraged, well, she, she wanted to surround herself with beauty. And in fact, she encouraged others to live like she did, surrounding themselves with beauty, beautiful homes, beautiful ornaments, beautiful friends, a life surrounded by beauty. And this is really just the aesthetic or visual version of positive thinking. You know, we want uplifting lives, inspirational lives, but that's just a problem. It's a problem when it comes to the death of the Lord Jesus because death, well, death is a bit of a downer. Death is a disappointment. And our ears are tuned to this modern world, a world of visual beauty, a world of the uplifting and the inspirational. And so the death of the Lord Jesus, well, it can feel just like that, well, that, you know, that necessary reality that we need to th- move through until we get to the good bit. Many would say that Jesus has evolved over time. That, in fact, who Jesus is or who we think Jesus is, is just, it's just something that the church has made up, a construct of the church. People do concede, most people concede, and most Serious historians will not dispute that Jesus existed. There's a Jesus of history. But what you believe in is the Christ of the church. This is an an invention on top of the Jesus of history. And um, in some sense, Jesus and who Jesus is has been manufactured. I don't know if you recognise... these statements, as you've spoken about Jesus, if people have thought about Jesus in these ways. Have a listen. A travelling and rejected mystic, a wonder worker healer, a wise man, a sage, a political revolutionary, a teacher of alternate spirituality, a good man of the rarest form of personal integrity. Has anyone come across someone saying that Jesus is that kind of person? A mystic? Sorry? Right, okay. Anyone else? Jesus mystic, a teacher, a healer. This is a very common perception of Jesus, isn't it? And perhaps a combination of all of the above. But the problem with that portrayal of Jesus is that it avoids fundamentally the manner in which he dies. That kind of portrayal of Jesus as the mystic, the teacher... The wise man sees his death as simply the inevitable consequence of his opposition to Roman authority. It's just like the unfortunate bit that happened at the end of his life. You know, Jesus, he was such a great guy, but he left us too early. You know, he had so much more to do and say if he wasn't cut down so young a man aged 33. The understanding is that his death is quite separate to his life. Put your hand up if you were living when JFK was assassinated. 63? 4? 
Okay, put your hand up if you keep your hand up if you can remember it. Right, there you go. Jen doesn't have her hand. It was a tragedy. And the nature of his assassination was quite separate and different to the nature of his life. But that's not the case for Jesus. The very nature of his death is not separate from the nature of his life. In fact, his life and his death, as the New Testament writers think of Jesus, as they heard him speak, they conceive his life and his death as inseparable. And it's not just that his death was, you know, that disappointing, unfortunate thing, a tragic event at the end of his life. No, the death of Jesus is extraordinarily important to the New Testament writers. For example, it's interesting to note in the Gospel of Mark, and this is not dissimilar to uh, Matthew or Luke, that one-third, one-third of the Gospel of Mark is devoted to the death of Jesus, chapters 11 to 16. And it's not just those chapters, it's within those chapters before, chapters 1 to 11, there are a number of references to Jesus' death, not least of which his own prediction of his death three times. See, as the gospel writers want to help us understand Jesus, his death is an essential component. It's not a tack-on. It's not an unfortunate ending. It's an essential and uh, component of who he is. But it's not simply his death that's important to the New Testament writers. We're up to point three, the scandal of the cross. It's not simply his death, it's his type of death. It's this kind of death that's very important to the New Testament writers. It's his crucifixion. Now, the crucifixion of Jesus is something that is familiar to us, particularly if we've been around church, but it's also familiar to us in Western culture. It's an icon of popular Western culture. And yet, that is a strange, that is a strange reality. It's strange because the cross of the Lord Jesus is for us and for Christian people throughout all the ages, something that holds such spiritual and special value. It is a sacred reality. And yet this sacred reality comes to us in the most profane of ways, the most repulsive of manner. How could, seriously, how could the state sponsored execution of an unknown Jew secure the salvation of the entire cosmos. How could that work? Who would dare to even claim that? Well, that's what Christians claim. That's what they claim from the very early church until today. But until Jesus, until Christianity came into the world in the first century, no one could have ever conceived of the worship of a crucified man, the worship of a crucified man. And early Christian preaching didn't hide from this reality. It didn't scurry around 
the crucifixion and the cross in order to get to the good bit like the resurrection. No, the cross was front and centre in the thinking and in the mind of those who first spoke about Jesus. Early Christian preaching announced this hideous event. They didn't shy away from it. They didn't airbrush it. They didn't try and re-spin it. They announced this hideous event. The torture and execution of Jesus as the entrance of God into human history. A Jewish peasant pinned alongside society's scum and refuse, left to die, left to be eaten by the grubs and maggots, for that's what they were, mocked, spat upon, taunted, by everyone, by the sophisticated elites, the intellectuals, but also by the popular masses, despised by those in religious circles, but also those who were secular. See, at the heart of the Christian faith, and this has been the case from the very first moments of Christian preaching, was not a nice, neat reality but a crucified man. At the core of Christianity, you see, is not an idea. At the core of Christianity is not a philosophy. At the core of Christianity is not just a powerful concept that we need to get onto with our lives. At the core of Christianity is the shameful, historic reality of Jesus' crucifixion. And yet, as much as this was front and centre for those early preachers, For the early Christian church, it was something that they wanted, at least, to retreat from. You see there, I've put down 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Why don't you turn to that as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll give you some background. The Corinthian church had heard this message from the Apostle Paul. He had left them with the message of the cross, but they had reorientated around now a wrong centre, you, you know, because they had graduated. Paul had, yes, helped them out to get a start. Paul had been the, the training wheels, if you like, but now they were peddling by themselves. They graduated beyond the cross. They'd updated. They'd modernised. They'd gone to the next level. Why? Well, you see there in verse 18 of... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the message of the cross is foolishness. That this wasn't just an attention-grabbing headline. This was the kind of message that people didn't want to hear. The kind of message that didn't make any sense. The kind of message that was unpalatable, that didn't have traction. And so the Corinthian church sought to move away, to step back, not to completely deny, but to remove the cross being front and centre of its life. It's always struck me that Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He was a man of powerful intellect, I suspect a man that you wouldn't want to debate with, a man of conviction, 
And yet, in his mind, and I think he knew for others, that there was a sense of being ashamed of this message. That shame might be the natural and understandable response to the cross because it lacked a sophistication. It lacked a sophistication to both the religious and the secular. Have a look there in verse 22. You see, what was appealing was, well, what the Jews wanted was miraculous signs and the Greeks looked for wisdom and Paul would have known exactly what people wanted. He was a trained Jewish religious scholar. He was also a Roman citizen, a man of the world. And so he knew what people wanted. He knew that people wanted a visionary experience to be uplifted spiritually. But the message of the cross wasn't this. The message of the cross wasn't spiritually glamorous enough for the Corinthians. The Corinthians wanted a little more razzle-dazzle out of the Apostle Paul. message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness in the ancient world and it's foolishness in our world. In the context of the first century, there were three ways, main ways in which the Romans, if they took you, if they captured you or imprisoned you and, um, and decided that you were to be executed, there were three ways in which they could do it. You could be burned decapitated or crucified. You take your pick. They didn't let you pick. They were the most common forms of execution. But crucifixion was rarely used. Crucifixion was rarely used because it was abhorrent even to those who conducted the execution. One man, a German man who died last year, an expert in the history of the crucifixion wrote this in a book that uh, Jim lent me, or I think David. He says this, Crucifixion was the worst of all methods of execution the the Romans used, but virtually never used for those who occupied high office and never for Roman citizens. When they, someone pointed out to me this morning off the back of this talk when the crowds were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, They weren't asking there for medium-level execution. They were asking for the gold-standard high version. And it wasn't simply gruesome in nature, but it was. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, says that the suffering servant will become so disfigured that even to look at such a disfigured person, you'd want to hide your face, marred beyond human recognition. It is a visual horror to see someone executed. Surround yourself with beauty or to boast in the cross. And it wasn't just a visual horror It was something far worse than the physicality of it. It was a shameful horror. It carried with it a stigma. For it was not simply the blood and other bodily fluid that was drained from a person in their crucifixion. It was their very dignity. One writer observes that, in fact, in crucifixion you kill yourself. The indignity of the victim 
is that they are their own executioner. Because those who were crucified usually died not through loss of blood, but through asphyxiation under their own weight. See the shame? You're actually so pathetic that under your own weight, you are the one who kills yourself. It's intended to dehumanise a person. It's intended to so degrade them that there is no vestige of humanity left within them. And it was public because this was important. The Apostle Paul observes in Acts chapter 26 verse 26 that Jesus didn't die in a prison cell with four walls and a roof. Paul says, no, the death of Lord Jesus wasn't done, wasn't It didn't occur in a corner because there was a statement. There was a statement that the Romans were making when they crucified a person. They were saying something. They were saying something political. It was a warning sign. They were saying, muck with us and this is what we'll do to you. Surround yourself with beauty or boast in the cross. Christians um, who are familiar with the cross, people like us can move so quickly past it. We know about the cross. We talk about the cross. And yet the cross is that kind of reality that if we really knew that if we begin to understand, it's not something that we to easily come towards, that we are drawn towards. One writer observed that, observes that Christians do not have the feeling that they must flee the crucified Christ. Sorry, Christians who do not have the feeling that they must flee the crucified Christ have probably not yet understood him in a sufficiently radical way. You see, it was a rugged cross, but we've smoothed it out. And so that is why the cross must always be preached. And what I mean by that is not simply from a pulpit, but the cross of the Lord Jesus must always be explained because it's not self-evident. It's not self-evident why the Lord of glory would die in this way. It's a scandal. It's a contradiction. And because of its nature, it's, well, there's always this temptation not to outright deny the cross, but to place it on the periphery, to avoid it and to move past it. Paul, in his preaching to the early church, you'll see there in point four, wanted to maintain the centrality of it. From a verse from Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. He's talking about the salvation. And this salvation has been brought about by what? By the blood, Paul writes, of the Lord Jesus. See, Jesus' teaching is essential to his ministry. He was a wise man. Some of his sayings were hard and have, um, could be described 
um, in mystical terms. But as essential as his teaching is to his ministry and his healings, his teaching and his healings are a preparation in, in order to understand his death. It is the cross and it is the cross alone that seals his mission and in fact makes ultimate sense of all that he taught and of all that he did. And the cross creates a new reality. That's where we're going to end here by looking at Revelation chapter 4. Because as we said, the cross was not a tack-on or a low moment from which the church recovered. Nor is the cross only the means by which our salvation is secured. cross secures our salvation but it's not only the means that secures our salvation like the job's been done by Jesus and now we can forget about it that's not John's vision in the book of Revelation why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 4 verse 2 because we see here that the cross is not a tack on in eternity but it is the very ground of worship for all eternity. In, John, in uh, the book of Revelation, back in John chapter 4 verse 2, John is taken up into the spirit and as he's taken up into the spirit he sees what? He sees heaven and he sees the whole company of heaven singing and joining in this song. If you cast your eyes back to Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, here's what they're singing, what you would think they'd be singing in heaven. They're singing praise to God. You are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and they have their being. And that's the way in which chapter 4 ends. Heaven, eternity, worshipping God for who he is. And yet chapter 5 starts with this problem. The seal containing the purposes of God for human history can't be opened. John is worried about it. In fact, he's weeping there in verse 4 because there's no one to unleash the plans and purposes for God upon the cosmos. But one of the elders taps him on the shoulder there in verse 5 and he says, do not weep, look. And it's as if John kind of blinks his eyes and that very company of heaven the praise of God, well, that, his perception of that changes. And he changes to see a lion there in verse 5. There at the centre of the worship of heaven is this lion, this lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's this warrior, king, this powerful one. He's able to open the scroll and the seven seals. But then it's as if he blinks again. And there in that very same moment, in that very same spot, there where the worship of heaven is centred upon God and now upon this lion, now it's not a roaring lion, but it's verse 6 what? It's a bleeding lamb. And this lamb, lambs are defenceless in and of themselves, but this is worse than a defenceless lamb. This is a slaughtered lamb standing where 
at the centre of the throne. Verse 8. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. The worship of heaven in chapter 4 is centred on God. The worship now in chapter 5 is centred upon this Lamb. And why? Why do they worship this Lamb? Why has the song of heaven changed there in verse 9 that this lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? Why? Because it was slain. And with his blood, he purchased men for God. Do you see the cross? The cross is not a peripheral reality. It wasn't an outside reality in the early church and in the preaching of who Jesus was. And even more importantly than that, the cross of the Lord Jesus is not a peripheral reality in eternity, within the worship of God, within our worship of God for all eternity. The cross is the very thing the very reality that will consume our worship of God. Worship for the one who was slain. And so that is why our boasting needs to be in the cross. Because it's the most important reality that our world has known, and more than that, it's the most important reality in our entire cosmos. That's why... Paul wants to boast and wants to encourage us also to boast. What does it mean to boast? Well, it just means what it says. What do you boast about? You boast in the things that you do. You boast in the compliments you get. You boast in your achievements. And we as Australians, we don't do this out loud, but we do it in our hearts all the time. You know, as Australians, why don't we like other people boasting? Because we can see ourselves in them. We boast all the time in our hearts. We tell ourselves the kinds of things that, you know, give us the edge in life, that we're attractive, perhaps, that we're intelligent, that we're accomplished. We boast in ourselves. But Paul and the writers of the New Testament want us to boast not in ourselves and not in our achievements, but in the Lord Jesus and in his achievement on the cross. Not what we've done, but what he's done. We boast, when we boast in the Lord Jesus and his death for us, we boast in our failures. We see the reality of our sin and of our falling short. And what does boasting bring? Boasting brings us humility. It brings us low to ourselves as we are taken with the Lord Jesus. Before God, the effect of the crucified Christ is to strip us naked of all our merit, 
to reveal our utter desperation and dependence on his mercy. The love of God comes to us through Christ crucified. So we see what our sin really deserved and we see what it cost him, what it cost God when he says he loves us. And so may our boasting be in the cross of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing.